power of the cross. That you would take two wooden beams and nail your son there. And by that one sacrifice, you would make atonement for the sins of the world. We are amazed at the power of a sacrifice over 2,000 years old that nevertheless has effect even until today. We're amazed at the power of a cross, O Lord, that not only takes away sin and guilt, but through faith in Christ also gives righteousness in your sight. Lord, we are amazed at the power of such love that gives itself as a ransom and brings into that love sinners and rebels and wretches and lawbreakers. What a love. What a cost. How amazing that we stand forgiven at the cross. And Father, we would that even now in the preaching of your word that you would unleash afresh the power of the cross, that we would behold the Son of God crucified, and that we would glimpse him in his glory resurrected and glorified, and our hearts might be made glad in him, and life might be given to the spiritually dead. Do this, O Lord. Show the power of your cross, we pray. Bless your people and grow their number. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, beloved. Excellent. Uh, for those of you who are visiting again with us for the first time, we want to say welcome to you again. Uh, I'm Pastor T. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here uh, at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the entire church family, I want to say welcome again. We're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. And I want to say one other word about us as a congregation. Uh, we do not take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel seriously. Right? We're not all up on ourselves because we are nothing in and of ourselves, but our Savior is mighty. Our Christ is great. His gospel is good news. And we want very much for everyone to hear that. If you hear nothing else this morning, we want you to key in on what we say about how it is you can know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior if you don't already know him this morning. That's the most important thing about our gathering this morning, and that's what we want you to leave here with, knowing and believing. A couple other sort of things real quickly in the way of announcements. Uh, Jahil, very rightly, uh, had us rejoicing in the two baptisms that we celebrated on last Thursday, but if you were unable to make the members meeting, uh, you should also know that we had the privilege of recommending to the congregation two other brothers to serve us as pastors. Uh, our brother Jahil Richards, who's disappeared somewhere, um, and our brother Andrew Nichols. And so we praise God for those men. Yes, amen. Amen. We praise God for those brothers and others that the Lord will have for us. Uh, we trust in the months and years to come. Uh, if you don't know Andrew and Jahil, well, you're in for a treat. Get to know them, call them up, invite them out to lunch, um, invite them over to your home for dinner, uh, make sure they pay. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, get to know them, inquire of their testimony, inquire of their call. Uh, this is a three-month period for us to discern together as a church family if indeed the Lord is calling these men to be our shepherds. Uh, and so we want to take this seriously. It's the most important uh, sort of item on your job description as a, as a church, as a congregation. So pray for these men. Uh, and examine these men, and in three months' time in our next, Lord's, uh, in our next members' meeting, Lord willing, uh, we will call these men, or not, uh, as the Lord directs, to serve as pastors in this congregation. If you have questions in the meantime or concerns about either of those brothers, uh, you can either address them with those brothers, or you can come to us as pastors and let us know your concern. That's part of the conversation we want to have over these next three months. Amen? And uh, is Peter Topolsky here this morning? I told him I would embarrass him, so he probably skipped the service this morning. The last couple of weeks, we've been recognizing people graduated from college and graduated from high school, and Peter, very humble, quiet self, just sat over there, didn't raise his hand, didn't say nothing, 
But just uh, yesterday or the day before, that brother graduated with his master's in education. And so we give God praise. Praise for Peter. If you see him, encourage him and embarrass him publicly, all right? <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. And continuing our study through the gospel of Luke, a study that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And that has been the burden and the aim of this series is to really do what this book was designed to do. And that's to look long at Jesus and to get to know him better than perhaps we knew him when we came together this morning. Luke chapter 17 is a section of scripture that finds Jesus continuing his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, he is going to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for sinners. He's already predicted three times in this gospel that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be tried, crucified, and turned over into the hands of, of sinful men and put to death, and that he'll be raised three days later. In this long section to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus is doing a couple of things. He's doing what he's been doing really since the beginning of his public ministry. He is teaching people about the kingdom of God, and he's doing various miracles to affirm that what he's teaching about the kingdom of God is, in fact, true. And that's what we see him doing in Luke chapter 17. And there are three scenes in this chapter. And scene number one begins with verse one, where Jesus there turns and he teaches some things to his disciples. Scene number two begins in verse 11. You see it there. Luke tells us that they were on the way to Jerusalem, and he was passing along between two other towns, Samaria and Galilee, two regions there, largely Gentile regions. And there he performs a miracle. Scene number three begins in verse 20. There the Pharisees, which are the sort of conservative religious leaders of Jesus' day, have a question for Jesus with regard to when the kingdom of God is to come. Those are the three scenes, teaching his disciples, traveling between Samaria and Galilee on the way to Jerusalem, and responding to this question about when the kingdom of God will come. Now, in those three scenes, we're going to sort of glimpse three things. Here's our outline for the sermon. Number one, Jesus commands us to forgive. Jesus commands us to forgive, it's verses 1 to 10. Number two, Jesus expects us to be thankful. He expects us to be thankful, verses 11 to 19. And number three, Jesus is coming in his kingdom. He's coming a second time in his kingdom, verses 20 to 37. Follow along as we read together God's Word. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. 
On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. They said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In many respects, what the Lord is teaching in this chapter are some values or ethics in the kingdom of God. The first thing that he comes to in Luke 17, verses 1 to 2 broadly is this issue of forgiveness. That if one is going to be a disciple, verse 1, that's who he's addressing, if he's going to be a follower and student of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he's going to live in a way that's consistent with the kingdom of God, it's going to have to be a person committed to forgiveness. Verse 1 gives us some facts of life, doesn't it? Notice the first fact of life. Temptations will surely come. Beloved, if you've never been tempted, then either you're very young or you're very dumb. <laughs> you ain't paying attention to life or you haven't lived life long enough yet. But temptations are sure to come. And they'll come in many forms. It's just a fact of this fallen life. Now, temptation is not the same as sin. Temptation is the thing that gives birth to sin when you give in to it. Temptation is the pull, it's the draw, it's the enticement, the allurement from outside or within that bends a person in his interest, in his desire, in his affection towards sin. But sin is not given birth until that conception, that temptation is conceived and, and acted upon. And so Jesus says, now, if you're going to live for me, you're going to live in a world where you're going to feel these influences, where you're going to feel these temptations. That's fact number one. Fact number two, but woe to those by whom or through whom the temptation comes. There's something worse than being tempted. That's being the tempter. 
That word woe is just the Old Testament prophet's way of announcing judgment instead of blessing. Jesus uses that formula throughout the Gospels when he's sober and serious and when he's addressing uh, the lives of the people in, a, in an intense way. He says, woe to those through whom the temptation comes. That's the second fact, that there is a judgment that hangs upon those who would be tempters. Their lives are like the life of that first tempter. Satan himself. And there are many ways to tempt, beloved. Many ways to play this role. We can tempt people to lust via immodesty. If we're salesmen, we can tempt people to greed by showing them things they don't need. If we're bad friends, we can tempt people to join us in the Ill deeds we do. Come on, man. Come on. It's going to be fun. So-and-so's going to be there. Don't worry about that. Your mom and dad, they just don't want you to have a good time. That is the voice and the message of the tempter. Learn to hear the hiss. Two facts. Temptation will surely come. And woe to the one through whom the temptation comes. The next verse tells us why the woe. You see that word picture Jesus uses? <laughs> He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, now, it would be better for that person who is the tempter, it would be better that a millstone, you know what a millstone is, is that big round stone that would be used to grind wheat. It would weigh, it'd be very heavy. He says, listen, it, it would be better if a millstone were tied around the tempter's neck and the stone was thrown into the sea and they were to drown effectively at the bottom of the sea. Then, then, that would be better than to fall into the judgment that God pronounces upon the tempter. Let that word picture play out in your mind. See for a second the rope being tied Around the millstone, it would normally have a hole in the middle, big donut-shaped thing. The rope tied through the middle of the millstone. It would take several men to lift it. And the other end of the rope being tied around the tempter's neck. They would be out in a seagoing vessel, and the millstone would be thrown over the side of the boat. First the rope would grow taut, then the sudden jerk on the neck. Then the plunging into the water, not flat as if to swim or upright as if to dog pedal, but upside down, being dragged neck and head first to the bottom of the sea, wrestling with that taut rope around the neck, kicking and wanting to scream, but there's water all around. You can't take it in. And feel the sea water rushing into the nose and rushing into the mouth and finally unable to keep your mouth Clothes gasping for breath, you would open and in would rush more water and the lungs would fill with water and you in all consciousness upside down in the sea, kicking and screaming, desiring to breathe, unable to breathe, terrified at what you know is happening to you. It would be better to suffer that. And to suffer the woe of God against sin and the tempter who brings it. Those are two facts of life that Jesus gives him in verses 1 and 2. And so now you see why he comes to verse 3, don't you? Pay attention to yourselves. How do you guard against temptation? How do you keep yourself from being the tempter? Well, you engage in a community project of watching each other. In our church covenant, I love the line that's where we promise to, to exercise a, a watchful and affectionate care for each other. Such beautiful and important words. That part of what it means to be Jesus' disciples is that we don't live as long-ranger Christians. We don't go off by ourselves, thinking ourselves strong enough to face temptation alone, or thinking ourselves wise enough, even with our freedoms, to avoid being a temptation to people. And so Jesus says in verse 3 to his disciples, pay attention to each other. Pay attention to yourselves. Watch out for each other. Have each other's back. So if someone sins, rebuke him. 
If, 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 if someone confesses and repents, forgive him. Beloved, what it means to be a church is to be a collection of people who are always receiving correction, giving correction, and rejoicing in it all as we avoid temptation and live for Christ. Now, just a word of caution. Somebody got excited at the idea of rebuking somebody else. You're probably least qualified to do it. That's probably a temptation for you to sin against your brother or sister by being harsh. And somebody else was really, really glad to see, and if they sin, forgive, because you, you, you love forgiveness, and you put a high premium on forgiveness, but, but the temptation for you might be never to say a correcting word when it's needed. That's not love either, beloved. See how balanced the master's instruction is. If a man sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And how often to forgive? You see what he goes on to say there in the next verse? He says, listen, if he comes to you seven times in one day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. I know what the laugh means, right? We all know, right? Because many of us, the first time, we like, <laughs> done with that rascal. Done with that rascal. Or if you get through the first time, you know, you come the second time, look, I'm going to forgive you, but you do that again, we done, right? Because you did me dirty. You do me dirty again, we done, right? So in our, in our natural man, in our sinful man, we maybe have one or two times, or if we're particularly gracious, we may feel like we got three times, but Jesus says seven times in one day. See, I won two or three times. That was over a lifetime, wasn't it? Jesus says seven times in one day, if your brother sins against you but comes to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Now, beloved, seriously, if you live long enough and, and you live a meaningful enough life, which is to say you're not sheltered and hiding from the world, but you're endeavoring to live faithfully for Christ in the world, chances are at some point in your life, someone's going to sin against you in so profound a way that forgiveness is going to be hard. Spouse is going to break their marital commitment. Child is going to go off the rails and dishonor you regularly. A co-worker at work going to get involved in office politics, and they're going to double-cross you. A brother or sister in the church is going to treat you poorly. All you got to do is live long enough in the world, and the seriousness of these verses will enter into your life. All you got to do is, is live with other people long enough, and people will fail you. People will sin against you. And I don't want us to be the kind of church that gets kind of Pollyanna about the church, thinking that because we are the church, we ain't never going to do nothing wrong or experience no hardship. No, beloved, if that's what you're looking for, two things. You won't find it here. You won't find it anywhere. See, we're sinners. Saved by grace, yes, but we are broken people, Right? And many of us are hurt people. And you know what broken and hurt people do? They break and hurt other people, right? And so, so, so let's just, if there's any romanticism in our minds about how long we're going to be able to live without stumbling with each other, let's just go ahead and get rid of the romanticism and go ahead and admit to ourselves that our Lord who knows all things told us before it would happen that a brother would sin against us and we would need to forgive him. And that sometimes the sin would come so frequently and so intensely that we would, as they do, notice in verse 5, cry out, increase our faith. You see, sometimes those little headers that you have in your Bibles that separate paragraphs and things, sometimes they're in the way. They're meant to help us keep track of what's going on in the story. But verse 5 is continuing the section that began in verses 1 to 4. There are two kinds of reactions that we can have to our Lord's teaching on, on forgiveness. One is unbelief. That's what we see in verse 5. 
And that's what you maybe have said to yourself or said to others or said quietly to the Lord when you've been confronted with a situation or I've been confronted with a situation where we've got to forgive some deep pain. And somebody opens the Bible and they point to the text and you can read, but you don't want to look down at it. You know, they point at the Bible, you look it up like this. And you're like, read, read this verse. They're like, read this verse. It's like, no, man, you go ahead and read it. You go ahead and read it. You know, they, they read it. And you peek down there to see if they really read it, right? And, and you see as plain as the words on the paper, forgive. You must forgive. You know what verse 4 says? You must forgive. And then you look at that situation and you feel your limitations. And somewhere in your soul, you say something like, well, Lord, you're going to have to help me do that. Anybody ever been there? Lord, you're going to have to help me do that. That's what increase our faith means in the Greek. <laughs> the first reaction that we will be tempted to have is the sin of unbelief. Verse 1 says, temptations will surely come. And the implication is, let us not give in to it. And so the, 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 the apostles cry out in verse 5, increase our faith. I love what Jesus says in verse 6. He said, listen, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and you said to a mulberry bush, get up and go dive into the sea, that mulberry bush would get up and go into the sea and obey your voice. Now, if we read that and just sort of stop at that and, ask, and not ask ourselves, what's Jesus' pastoral point here? Then, then we're kind of challenged to think about how little faith we have, aren't we? We, we kind of look at that and go, man, I ain't never said to a tree, even blow in the wind and it blew. Not, much less, you know, get up. And so you, you lose sight of the fact that this is hyperbole. That Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's saying even a very little bit of faith could do what is naturally impossible. It's meant, I think, pastorally to be an encouragement to the disciples in saying, yes, I know that your faith needs to be increased, but beloved, even if you exercise a little bit of trust in me, you can forgive the hardest cases. Trust me just a little bit, and I'll move a mulberry tree for you. I'll make it walk to the ocean. I'll make it obey your desire. If your desire is to live the way I've instructed, to forgive as I have forgiven you. The second temptation, when we hear the Lord tell us to forgive, is not the temptation of unbelief, it's the temptation of pride. Well, we say, well, I got this. I've forgiven somebody once before. I'm good. You know, I know how to forgive. It's no big deal for me. And in fact, to go on and to think, because I have forgiven others, Lord, you remember that time I forgave that sister? Yeah, I know it's 32 years ago, but you remember that time I forgave that sister? You know, I, your, brother, your boy needs some big ups, man. Your boy needs some props. You know, I need some praise, right? It's the way pride acts. Now, notice the next little parable the Lord tells because he addresses that pride. Verse 7, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, so you see you got a servant out in the field plowing the fields or walking in the sheep pen, when any of you with such a servant say to him, when he's come in right out of the field, come at once and recline at table, will he not rather say to him, the servant who's just come out of the field working now, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. That's, what, that's the relationship between the master and the servant. The servant serves the master enjoys the privilege of being the master. He doesn't say to a servant who's come out of the field, come sit at the table with me and eat with me. No, you're not done yet. Fix the dinner, then clean yourself. Then you can come back and serve me and watch me eat. And when I'm done, you can eat. That's the nature of master-servant relationship, right? Nobody says come sit at the table. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because the servant did what was commanded? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is likely no. Then Jesus gives us the punchline in verse 10. So you, the disciples, also, when you have done all that you were commanded, meaning to forgive those who have sinned against you, when you have forgiven those who have sinned against you, say, we are unworthy servants. 
We have only done what was our duty. What's Jesus doing pastoring? He's lowering their estimation of themselves. He's keeping them from getting puffed up because they managed to forgive someone. He's helping them to understand that that command to forgive is indeed a command, and it's their duty, and like servants to a master of a household, they're not, they're not going to get praise and applause and, and plaudits for doing what they were told. Say, I am an unworthy servant. <coughs> In other words, be humble. Forgive, keep the command, be humble. And this is all very critical, beloved. Read in Matthew chapter 6, I believe it is, verses 14 and 15, where the Lord says over there that if you don't forgive, if I don't forgive, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. So profound is this duty. That it's bound up together with whether or not we have truly received forgiveness ourselves. But that's the other truth. Not only do hurt people hurt people, but forgiven people forgive people. So, let me ask you this in way of application. Is there any brother or sister you must forgive? You have outstanding debts with any brother or sister in the Lord, wherein you know you must either ask forgiveness and repentance or extend forgiveness and obedience. Don't leave those outstanding. If you need to, ask the Lord for faith. Ask the Lord for faith that in doing what he instructed, he will both give you grace to do it he will see you through it, and he will bring you out on the other side better than you feel. He will keep you. He will provide for you. He will sustain you. Let us ask him to give us faith to believe that and to do what he's called us to do. And then let us go and regard ourselves as merely faithful servants, having done what the Lord has asked us to do. And beloved, how many of you know, even though that verse is meant to work humility in us, we are still unworthy servants? How many of you know what a wonderful thing it is to be a servant of the Lord? To even merely be a servant of the Lord is a fabulously exquisite thing. And we won't boast of it in this life, but we'll glory in it in the life brings us to our second point. Not only what we forgive, but in verses 11 to 19, we learn that Jesus expects us to be thankful. Verse 10, the scene switch. Again, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's passing along between Samaria and Galilee to regions of that time that were largely Gentile, largely people who were not Jewish and not in covenant relationship with God. They would have been regarded as outsiders, or in our language today, they would have been regarded as unsaved people. Now notice the sick men's request in verses 12 and 13. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A leper is someone with a skin disease. And that skin disease was thought to be contagious and was treated in the, in the worship of Israel as unclean. And so a leper had to be separated from the rest of the camp and the rest of God's people. He had to be quarantined, basically, outside the camp for a period of time until the leprosy was healed. And when the leprosy was healed, then his clothes had to be burned and things in his house that he had touched, all of that had to be burned. And he had to go see the priest in order for the priest to pronounce him clean before he could rejoin God's people and to fellowship with God's people. This is why they are outside, and this is why they are a long distance away from Jesus. You see how the text says they were a distance off, and they raised their voice to yell to him. And normally what a leper would have been called to yell is unclean, unclean, unclean. 
They would have been required to announce to everyone coming their way that they were unclean before God. Think about that for a moment. To be made to be the prophet of your own uncleanness. To be made to be the announcer of your own uncleanness and unworthiness before God. To have to tell everybody that saw you that you were unclean. It used to be that preachers would ask a question like this and say, how would you feel if your life and the secrets of your life and the sins of your life were displayed on a movie screen like at a drive through theater. That's what it was to be a leper, to have your uncleanness displayed before the whole world and to announce it as part of your separation from God and his people. Maybe we then understand what they cry out for. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's the prayer that Jesus always answers. Whenever the the sinner in the gospel calls out, have mercy on me, Lord, Jesus always answers that prayer. It's a wonderful prayer to pray, whether or not we are aware of our uncleanness or whether or not we are always aware of it. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not a human being alive that should not be praying that prayer. It may be that we haven't prayed it for a while, and that's only because we haven't thought about our need. And that's reason to repent right there. That prayer, Lord, Master, Jesus, have mercy on me, ought to be the abiding prayer on our tongues because all of us are in need of mercy. And apart from mercy, all of us are unclean before God. Every one of us. So we see the sick men's request. Now see the, serv- the, the Savior's merciful reply in verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And there's something marvelous about that text. When he says, go and show yourselves to the priests, he is in fact complying with the law. That's what they were supposed to do. But from some distance, he says that. And maybe as they turn, they're just thinking, okay, I'm pointing me back to the law. He point me back to obeying the requirements of the law. But as they turned, without Jesus touching them or saying anything more to them, as they turned and head on their way, they are cleansed. They are healed. Uh, the Lord does this miracle. He shows them mercy. He answers their prayer request. They said, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And in the very act of turning, The disease was taken. Now, I love this about Jesus. I love the way Jesus loves lepers. (laughs) I love the way the master gives attention to the unclean. He's going somewhere. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a purpose in mind. And the Bible says his face was fixed like flint to go to Jerusalem and to go to the cross. He's about to accomplish the most important task in the history of the universe. And over on some hill, some lepers call out to him far away saying, have mercy on me. And Jesus, on the way to the cross, has time to show mercy. There are gods who are worshipped, who are cruel and vindictive, who crush the, the people that they worship, though they're idols and are no gods. They are ruthless. But the one true and living God who visits us in his son, he is not some cruel dictator. He does not crush us in our weakness. He does not stomp us out in our uncleanness. When we cry out for mercy, he answers that like singing an old song, Mr. Connor. 
Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. I bet you those lepers sang that. Or at least one. Notice the Savior's merciful reply and see the Samaritan man's return in verses 15 and 16. He turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Doesn't tell us what he said, but he was loud and he was praising God. And he fell on his feet, his face, excuse me, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now you see what's happened? In his mercy, Christ has eliminated the distance between the leper and the Savior. He was way off, unclean. Christ has now made him clean by this miracle, and now he's at the master's feet. He's at the Lord's feet. This is what kind of savior he is. He, he brings the unclean into cleanliness and right up to himself, right up in his presence. And this man does what all, all those who have received mercy ought to do. He praises God with a loud voice. Notice he gives thanks at Jesus' feet. He gives thanks to God. Now, you'd think that everyone who was healed would have come back and given thanks, wouldn't you? you think the other nine, when they heard this man with a loud voice crying out, would at least turn around and say, what's that fool talking about? And that might have been the occasion for them to recognize that they had been healed when they turned as well, and we had better go back and at least say thank you. I mean, that's one of my things. My mama just, oh, I got so many knots on the back of my head. My mama smacking me upside the head because I forgot to say thank you or something. Or she would ease up beside me. If we were in front of real good company, she wouldn't slap me in the back of the head. That was like family. But if we were for, with real good company, she'd just slide over and she'd pinch me on the slide. Say, say thank you, boy, thank you. <laughs> I mean, we all learn that lesson when we're from children, don't we? What ingratitude. What ingratitude. To call out for mercy, to receive it, and not to even say thank you. Maybe there are two things that should happen with each of us every morning when our eyes awake and we are shaken from our slumber, maybe we should say two things, perhaps in this order. Lord, have mercy and thank you. If we're rushing, we have time to pray, nothing else. Lord, thank you for fresh mercies this morning. And notice the Savior's final response in verses 17 and 19. He wonders, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Notice this sentence here. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? That's the other reason why I love Jesus. <laughs> Almost no one in this room would have, have even hope of knowing God if God did not have in his heart, in his mind, from before the worlds began, not only to create a new people called Israel, who would be his covenant people in the Old Testament, but if he did not have in his heart and his mind, as Galatians 3 verse 8 says, to preach the justification of Gentiles to Abraham way back then, if he didn't have in his mind that he would save Samaritans, that he would save foreigners, almost no one in this room would have even the prospect of knowing him. But from before the world began, God purposed that he would take a people that were no people and that he would make them his people. That he would take people who were foreigners to Israel, who were strangers to the covenants of promise. He would take people who were far away from him, and he would gather them from the four corners of the globe, and he would make of them one new people, Jew and Gentile, known by his name. 
This Samaritan is a commercial of God doing precisely that. And we're left to think that by implication, when he says, was there not one but this foreigner, that the other nine might have been Jewish. And in this one stroke, he reminds us that he's going to gather people from every tribe, language, and nation and make them his people. And by that same stroke of the pen, he reminds us we cannot be religiously self-righteous. We cannot take for granted the covenants of the Lord, the promise of the Lord. For here were people who, if they were Jewish, had had the promises of God for centuries. And it did not even result in thanksgiving. So there are at least two categories of people addressed by this story, aren't there? There are those of us who feel far away from God, like foreigners and lepers. And this story just begs you to understand that Christ came for you came for the unclean. He did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And all of us have had this leprosy of sin. All of us have been separated from God because of our sin. But God has sent us the remedy. He sent us the cure. He sent us the medicine that heals. And it is Christ, his son, who came into the world in our flesh and who died in our place to pay the punishment for sin, to atone for our rebellion, and to provide us righteousness before God. And so the gospel means, you unclean foreigner, come to the foot of your Lord. You unclean sinner, don't dream of being fit before God. Run to him. Come to him. Cry out for mercy. He gives it freely, and he will welcome you as his very own. Though you had been a foreigner, unknown to God, he will adopt you as his very own child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says to church folks, uh, don't grow cold or lazy in your relationship with the Lord. You too call for mercy. You too, if you've been saved by the sacrifice of Christ and putting your faith in him, live a life of continual thanksgiving. No matter what else is happening in our lives, and there may be a lot happening in our lives, we may be experiencing a lot of brokenness, but if Christ has saved you, if Christ has cleansed you, if Christ has made you his very own, oh, give thanks. Give thanks always. Give thanks in everything because the things that we suffer in this life, they are not eternal. They are temporary. And our suffering in this life is producing for us a greater glory in the life to come so that even in our suffering, we have cause to expect glory and give thanks. Christ has come to make for himself a thanksgiving people. And our faith blooms in the hothouse of thanksgiving. Maybe the Lord feels distant to you too. Here's an exercise for this afternoon. Just with pencil and pad. Y'all remember what those are, right? Pencil and paper, or if you got an iPad, whatever you want to use. Just sit down and list the reasons for giving God thanks. Count your blessings, great and small. Number them. Number them all. Watch how your heart begins to open in thanksgiving to God. Because the lie of the enemy and the, the deception of our suffering is that it tempts us to think, or to ask the question at least that Janet Jackson once asked. I ain't even got to finish the point. Don't we all get in that spot sometimes? What have you done for me lately? And somebody else singing the chorus, ooh, yeah. <laughs> we all get to that space, don't we? We need to break out of that space. Number your blessings, great and small. Number them one by one, number them all. And give thanks 
to such a wonderful Savior who not only cleanses lepers, but brings them close. And that brings us appropriately to our third point and that third scene, which begins in verse 20. And really, in verses 1 to 19, what we're seeing are commercials for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, for those who are in that kingdom, it produces the kind of people who repent and who forgive. That's what this community is meant to look like until it's perfected when Christ comes. Constant repentance and forgiveness. And that kingdom breaks into the world and it brings healing and restoration. And the healing of this leper is simply a commercial of that day when we get our glorified bodies. You dissatisfied with your body? Look to the day of Christ's coming. Look to the day when he will do one of two things. He will, he will perfect all of our imperfections and he will fix the distortions in our mind about what beauty is. So that if he never changes your body, you will look at your body and see glory. All of this is a commercial of that coming kingdom. And so it's appropriate now in verse 20 that the religious folks want to know when will the kingdom of God come. And Jesus really gives five answers to that question. Don't worry, it's not a second sermon. I'm going to give them to you quickly. The first answer is this. The Pharisees can't see it. Verses 20 to 21, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or you may have a translation that says the kingdom of God is in you. They are looking for something that has already arrived. At the moment Christ stepped on the scene, the kingdom of God was breaking in. And this kingdom is not some physical kingdom that can be measured in miles and drawn with borders. This kingdom goes everywhere God's word goes. This kingdom goes everywhere that the gospel goes. This kingdom goes everywhere where people, sinners, lepers, are brought into that kingdom by faith. Did you notice at the end of verse 10, he says, go your way, your faith has made you whole. Everywhere that faith is known. There, in that person and in that midst, is the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees, they don't see it. They don't have spiritual eyes to see it. It was right in their midst. And they missed it. Beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, let me assure you, you don't have to go looking at some far-off place to find the kingdom of God. It's right here in your midst this morning. It may be even in you if you would put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees missed it. They can't see it. Number two, the disciples can't miss it. See it there again in verses 22 to 25. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples three kind of things in those verses. Number one, he says, don't believe it when people tell you they know where the kingdom of God is. Don't, don't follow them. And that's striking, isn't it? How many lives could have been saved from cult groups if they only knew this verse? I mean, the lives that were sinfully taken in Jonestown. The cult leader, Jim Jones. The lives that were taken in Waco, Texas, following David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. The people who were killed and the lives that were lost in the so-called Heaven's Gate cult massacre. And these are just the pseudo-Christian cults. How many other religious cults are out there that have taken lives by promising there is the Messiah, there is the kingdom, come over here and look, go over there, there it is, and people led to the slaughter. Jesus says this, now listen, when the kingdom comes, don't believe it when people tell you that it's over there in some corner somewhere. And, and here's why. Notice what he says in verse 24. When the kingdom comes, it's going to be like lightning that starts on one side of the sky and circles the entire sky and fills the sky. In other words, you won't miss it. The coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of God will be so glorious and be so obvious that it will be like lightning that, that petrifies the world. 
I don't know about how many of you grew up in a house. Maybe this is just some down south stuff. I don't know. But I don't know how many of you grew up in a house that when you had a real bad thunder and lightning storm, old school would be like, sit down, don't say nothing. <laughs> don't touch that paper, boy. It's lightning outside. <laughs> you get a real bad lightning storm, man. And, and as long as the storm lasts, you be sitting there in the dark, man. <laughs> <laughs> Some of y'all don't <laughs> Jesus says, now, when I come, it's going to be that kind of lightning storm that makes the whole world stand still. It makes the whole world jaw drop in awe at the brilliance and the glory of the coming of the Son of God. It's unmistakable. The disciples won't miss it. And the reason we won't miss it and won't need somebody pointing it out to us is because, as Titus 2 says, it's our blessed hope. We are waiting on the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for it. We've got it in us, and we're waiting for its completion. There is in us this yearning. Did you, did you see that in the text? Let me see if I can find that real quickly. Why would they, in verse 23, be wanting to look for it? Why would they be susceptible to people saying, it's over here or it's over there? It's because they are waiting. They are longing. They are looking for it. They are hoping for it. And beloved, if you have this hope in you, it will be fulfilled. It will be completed. And you won't need any street signs. And you won't need any pointer. Christ will light the sky. And it will be to you and me the most glorious thing we have ever beheld. Now Jesus says one more thing in verse 25. He tells us that there is only one event that is to happen before his coming happens again. Now, I want to suggest to you that you forget all of the charts that you've seen with sort of fancy end-time diagrams and you know, color-coded charts and, and whole sequence of events, I want to suggest to you that that's well-intended and people are endeavoring to understand their Bibles, but I think, and I think Jesus thinks, they got it wrong. Verse 25 says, but first, right? He says, now in verse 24, when I come, it's going to be like lightning that lights up the whole sky. He's talking about the second coming. The only thing that comes before that is verse 25. But first, what's going to happen? He's going to go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. The only thing that's left to happen before Jesus comes again is Jesus coming again. And his going to Jerusalem is the final payment he makes for his kingdom and for his reign and for our salvation. We're not awaiting tribulations. We're not awaiting raptures. We're not awaiting seven-year periods and the, the, leasing, the unleashing of beasts. <laughs> we are waiting for the coming of the Son of God. And when we see him, we will be satisfied. And if we are here, we will not miss it. You can't miss it. He says to the Pharisees, you can't see it. He says to the disciples, you can't miss it. He says to the world in verses 26 to 30, you aren't expecting it. You see there in 26 to 30, he refers to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And he tells us what was happening in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. They were doing things like marrying and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking. They were planting fields and starting businesses. Life was going on as it had always been going on. That righteous preacher Noah had warned his generation and nobody believed him. God had sent angels into Sodom to, to get Lot, and Lot had tried to warn that wicked generation, and nobody believed him, and they kept on with their lives just as they were. So when the door was closed on the ark and the rain began to fall, and when the angels escorted Lot out of the city and the fire began to fall from heaven, it was too late. It was too late. So, cap so captivated by their routine of worldliness, they didn't hear the announcement of a coming kingdom. 
They didn't hear the announcement of a way of escape from the judgment of God that was coming upon the world. And right now, there are ticker tape parades on uh, January the 1st. There are all kinds of parades in our city centers. Businesses are being started. People are marrying, and that's a wonderful thing. But if you do any of that in a way that blinds you coming to the coming of Christ, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. It's working like an idol. And did you notice the end of verse 29? Did you notice the end of verse 27? Those four words, and destroy them all. God's judgment is so complete and so perfect. There will be no escape unless you escape through Christ. Unless you heed the warning of God's word and you heed the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is and will be no way of escape. His judgment will consume all. If I can address you this morning, if you're here and you're just thinking about Christianity, you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet sure that you're a Christian, let, let me assure you of two things. God's judgment is real and it's coming. God's salvation is free and it's for you. His judgment is coming against the world where he will end all unrighteousness and wickedness and he will call every sinner to account. In his great love, in his great mercy, he has sacrificed his son in your place and raised him from the grave for your justification, for your righteousness. And he has offered to you freely the gift of forgiveness and eternal life and his love in the very kingdom that he's talking about in this chapter. And if you would repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him as your Lord, all of God's kingdom will be yours and that will be nothing compared to having God himself. Be assured of two things. His judgment is real and it's coming. And today is the day of salvation. He offers it to you freely. And trust in Christ. If you want to know more about how to do that, or if you got more questions about that, that's why we exist as a church. Talk with the Christian friend who brought you. Talk with any of the pastors after the service. We really want you to understand and to believe this. Not because we think we're the only ones who have it right, but because we know that God loves you and God wants you for himself. And God will give you a better life than you can imagine. A life with him in his kingdom. And we want you to have that. Talk with us. Notice what's happening in this text. The Pharisees can't see it. The disciples can't miss it. The world won't expect it. Number four, only the self-denying will find it. Only the self-denying will find it. You see that in verses 31 to 33. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Those three words in verse 32 are haunting, aren't they? You know the story of Sodom, Lot's wife, and Lot escaped as the fire comes down from heaven in judgment against Sodom, but God had instructed them by the angels to not look back. And Lot is headed out with his daughters and, and with his wife, and they are fleeing the destruction of the city, and they can hear the voices going up in horror and panic and judgment and suffering. Lot's wife steals a glance, turns back, and in that instance, turned into a pillar of salt. She turns back, and she suffers the judgment she was meant to escape. Beloved, let us remember Lot's wife. If we have began with Christ, no turning back. No turning back. We sing that too, don't we? At baptisms, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
But turning back is symbolic of thinking of the world and what's in the world as somehow equivalent or better to Christ and what's for us in glory. This is why he says, don't leave the rooftop to go get your possessions, or if you're out in the field, don't leave the field to go back to your house. No, forsake it all, forget it all. And this is what he means in verse 33. If you try to save your life, you will lose it, but counterintuitively, if you lose your life, you will gain it. If you forsake the things of this world and not turn back to the world, if you forsake the pool of this world and follow on after Christ, no turning back, no turning back, you will find your life. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Christ will give you life, but you must die to this life first. We must be crucified together with Christ so that he lives in us. And that requires a break from the world. The kingdom comes to those who deny themselves, who die to self, and who live to Christ. Finally, the Pharisees can't see it. The disciples won't miss it. The world won't expect it. Only the self-denying will find it. Finally, those who miss it will perish. Verses 34 to 37. Verses 30, verse 37 being the, the summation of it all. There'll be two sleeping together in bed and one will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding at the mill and one will be taken, and the other left. And again, if you're familiar with certain prophetic schemes that emphasize the rapture, that's not the rapture. For notice what he says in verse 37. The disciples ask, where would they be taken? Good question. And the Lord Jesus says, where the corpse is, where the vultures are. That's not heaven, beloved. Everything in heaven is alive. There are no corpses. There are no dead bodies. There are no vultures. These carrion that feed on dead things. Everything in heaven is alive. These are taken away to judgment. Not ready, not expecting the coming of the kingdom. The text ends on that note. Perhaps we should end on that note once again. Let us not presume but let us really have trust. You know the difference between presumption and faith. Faith looks like obedience. It looks like relying upon Jesus to deliver us just as he promised, and it looks like obeying him from that obedience that comes from faith. Presumption looks like lip service, saying the right things, maybe knowing the right things, but going a different way. Disregarding his coming, disregarding his holiness, living for ourselves. Well, that presumption will not save. That presumption kills. Faith? Faith saves. Faith makes us whole. Faith delivers us into God's love and God's kingdom. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior. If you have, his kingdom is yours.